Monte Carlo says, here we go, here we go. I still have Friday's beer can in here, but that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> hey everybody, I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make the day make sense. Kimberly is off today. Joining me now, though, Marketplace Smith Fields. Hey, Sam. Hey, Kai. Thanks for having me. This is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, where we answer questions that you, our listeners, have sent in. If you have a question about the economy, business, or tech, you can send it to us at makemesmart at marketplace.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART. Our first question today comes from listener Rachana in South Carolina. She writes, I have heard the term I-bond on your program. Can you please make me smart on how the I-bond is different from other treasury bonds? Yeah, we can do that. Am I taking this one? What do you think? I think you're taking this one. I think you know a lot right, about this, this guy. So, so um, <laughs> treasury bonds are, of course, the IOUs that the government gives you when you uh, buy a treasury bond, right? They say, listen, give us $100 or $10,000 or whatever denomination of bond you would like to buy, and we will pay you back at maturity uh, whatever the going interest rate is for the 10-year treasury note. And, and today in the market, it was like 3.9%. Now, the problem is if you hold a regular old uh, treasury note or a bond or a bill uh, for uh, its maturity, given the inflation that we have going on today, which is above 8% according to the Consumer Price Index, you will, of course, lose money. And that is not what you want to do, right? You don't want to let inflation eat away at your bond market investments. So the Treasury, a number of years ago, came up with these things called Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. And what they are is specifically designed to protect investors from inflation. They have a fixed interest rate, right, plus a variable rate tied to the Consumer Price Index, which adjusts every May and November. We can put the formula on our show page, but the rate right now, if you buy one through the end of this month, the rate right now is 9.62%. So 9.62% is above the 8-whatever-it-is percent inflation that we're running at at a consumer level right now. So you're doing pretty well. I mean, you're not doing great. You're not making a zillion dollars but you are making money on your bond investment. And that is definitely a good thing. You can hold them, you can sell them, you can trade them, you can do whatever you want. Um, let me put the caveat in here. Consult your own financial advisor because playing the bond market can be a really, really tricky thing because bonds can be a little counterintuitive. Um, but treasury inflation protected securities are a good way to do it. And that is the difference between an inflationary protected bond uh, and a regular bond, right? It protects you against inflation. The government knows and they look out for you. Now, obviously when inflation's low, the yield on those things is lower, but that's okay because inflation's low. So anyway, that's my spiel on I on had never bonds. heard people talking about this just kind of in the world around me very much until the last six months or a year. And now I'm seeing yeah, people posting yeah. it on all these different Facebook groups yeah. and things about investing. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, no, it's pretty good. All right. Uh, Anna or Anna in Texas uh, has a question about supply chain. Here uh, is uh, the tape. Hi, guys. I'm wondering if you can make me smart on why there's been no sugar-free peanut butter for months in stores. And recently, I've tried to find arugula and only can find 50% spinach and 50% arugula, which is really like three pieces of arugula <laughs> hanging out with a whole bunch of spinach. So what's up with that? Okay, yeah. so Anna, Anna, um, hope we're pronouncing your name right. 
We were looking around for the answer to this question, and we didn't actually find anything about a widespread nationwide shortage of peanut butter or arugula, but that doesn't mean it's not happening in some places, maybe where you live. Shortages can vary a lot depending on where you are. Um, There was a big arugula shortage in 2020, and I remember this. I remember going to the grocery store and thinking, where is all of the arugula also? But it was a while ago. Wait, seriously? Um, You were looking like specifically for arugula? You're like, where's all the arugula going? Well, I wanted to buy it for a specific salad, yes, and it was nowhere Ah, to be found. (laughs) And then at the time, there was sort of an unusually cold and wet growing season in the Southwest, and a lot of growers lost their arugula to something called downy mildew, apparently. Um, And so Mm. I'm not seeing anything about that right now. Uh, But in terms of peanut butter... GIF did a recall in May because of some salmonella concerns. Unclear if that could still be making it hard for you to find peanut butter now. But bigger picture, supply chain issues, even though they have improved a lot since earlier in the pandemic, haven't gone away completely. There are still problems for a lot of companies, businesses, getting certain ingredients or components to make things sometimes. There are still all those trucking and shipping and unloading delays. Mm -hmm. And companies are still having trouble finding workers. Many, even when they have workers, are running into situations where staff get COVID and are out and things get slowed down. And then when it comes to food specifically, there's also climate-related issues. You know, there's, of course, the ongoing drought in the West, and that's been affecting a lot of farmers who grow all sorts of different crops. And then on the flip side, there's been a lot of rain and flooding around the country this summer, too, which can also ruin crops. I think I was reading something about peaches uh, being affected by that. And, you know, I feel like with climate change, we're going to start seeing these kinds of shortages of different foods, fruits, vegetables, other foods, probably more often going forward. I don't know, but it just seems like that's probably true. I've been noticing sometimes in my grocery store that if they're out of something, they'll put up a sign explaining that it's a weather-related thing, which is, again, Mm. something I hadn't seen until more recently. No, I think think you're totally right. I think climate-induced shortages of basically everything— uh, yeah. are going to continue. Also, I should just say here, my shock at somebody going shopping for a specific kind of lettuce is that I'm <laughs> I'm not a lettuce guy. I'm not a vegetable guy. So that was my surprise. I was going to say, are you a vegetable so, guy at all? I'm you know? I'm just not. I'm such not a vegetable guy. So that's If me. you had to eat one, what would it be? Uh, if I had to eat a vegetable. Corn? Corn. Corn's a good one. I love corn. Okay. All right. I endorse okay. this. Oof. Okay. (laughs) All right. We have another question now. This one is a voice memo. Hi, Make Me Smart. This is John in Augusta, Georgia. My question is about mortgage rates. Like many other Americans, I was able to take advantage of historically low mortgage interest rates in 2020 when purchasing our house. Mm -hmm. What I want to know is, why were they so low? Did banks really think that the cost of borrowing money over 30 years was going to stay at under 3%? Or was it a race to the bottom? Thanks for making me smart. All right, Kai, this is you again. Well, yeah, so mostly it was the latter. But look, let's think about uh, what was going on, right? Uh, when you refi- when you bought your house, not refi, but when you bought in 2020, right, it was probably, uh, given the timing of the pandemic pandemic and everything, it was when the Fed was, was doing all it could to keep the economy going. And one of the things it did was, as we've talked about before, really expand its balance sheet, right? It sent money into the economy. And one of the ways it did that was that Jay Powell went to that secret Fed chair keyboard that he has in his office and he (laughs) created a gazillion dollars, okay, by punching a couple of numbers on his computer. And he created a bunch of money. I'd like to be able to do that. I know, right? And then the Fed (laughs) went out and bought mortgage-backed securities. 
And when the Fed buys mortgage-backed securities, that has the long-term effect of making uh, interest rates go down. So part of it was uh, straight-up market forces. That was the Fed forcing things low, right? So that was what was happening in that instant. But the other thing you have to realize about the mortgage business is that it's a business and that if a bank can get your mortgage at, you know, by paying you 2.99%, when the bank across the street will only go to 3%, then they're going to take your money and actually give you the mortgage because they want to make money, right? It's a business proposition. So banks were competing in a low and falling interest rate environment to offer money cheaper so that they could get your business. Do they think that that money is going to be cheap forever? No, but those banks, as we learned in the financial crisis, don't hold most of their loans on their books, right? They securitize them out. They sell them off to other people. And so those banks are not on the bank's books at 3% or whatever we were paying. So combination of Federal Reserve action and actual market forces is what uh, uh, kept mortgage rates low. Now, what you have to remember is that the exact reverse thing is happening now in the mortgage market a mere two and a half years later, right? The Federal Reserve mm-hmm. is raising its short-term interest rate. It is also um, letting some of those bonds that it bought back in 2020 with with Jay Powell's magic money, it's letting the maturities roll off so that it's shrinking the size of its balance sheet, and that's going to drive long-term um, interest rates up and mortgage rates are going to follow. So your timing, actually, and anybody who refied in like 2020 did really, 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 really well. It's a much tougher problem now, as we've seen with, you know, the 30-year fixed rate average mortgage in this country going from like 3% at the beginning of the year to just about 7% now. So it's the, 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 the mortgage rate industry works in mysterious ways. Let's just say that. But that's what was going on in 2020, John. Boom. Good luck, John. Or good job, John. Jealous. Good job, right? Time. Look, time is everything. Time <laughs> is everything. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. All right. Uh, another one, Tom in Cupertino. It's uh, a climate question. It's an email. How does the weather disaster in Florida, that of course would be um, Hurricane Ian, compare with the hurricane in 1900 when Galveston was wiped out and never recovered? Galveston was replaced by Houston as a regional hub. Will we expect similar rearrangement of influence? Could Miami perhaps be the next city to be wiped out? Oh my gosh, John uh, or Tom, uh, wiped out by climate change. Sam, over to you. So to that last question, could Miami be the next city to be wiped out? I mean, I don't think any of us know that, certainly. And it's certainly vulnerable, but so are a lot of cities in this country. Um, So more on that in a minute. But that hurricane that hit Galveston in 1900 is still the deadliest storm in U.S. history. It killed somewhere between six and 12,000 people. uh, And it devastated the city, which at the time was one of the wealthiest ones in Texas. Now, there were no categories for hurricanes at the time, but estimates now put it at about a Category 4, which is what Hurricane Ian was when it made landfall in Florida, almost a Category 5. Um, But, you know, I'd say one of the biggest differences is that no one in Galveston knew that storm was coming. There wasn't much forecasting in 1900 at all. So people were totally unprepared. No one evacuated. No one boarded up or anything, which is why so many people died. Um, And there also weren't really building codes at the time designed to withstand major storms. Um, You know, and we have all those things now. So forecasting has gotten really good. It's gotten better even just in the last few years. And it makes a huge difference. It saves a lot of people's lives every time there's a huge storm. And, you know, we still don't know how many people died in Hurricane Ian. It might be a little while. So far, we know it is Mm -hmm. over 100, which is awful. It's a lot of people. But it's also easy to imagine how many more people would have died if we hadn't known the storm was coming. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's a big one. And then Florida also adopted some pretty strict building codes after Hurricane Andrew in 1992. So even though Hurricane Ian did do tens of billions of dollars of damage, I think the latest estimates are kind of guessing it'll be, you know, in the 60, 70 billion dollar range, which is huge. It's likely less than it would have been otherwise. Um, And then in terms of coming back to Miami and its future, we actually have another Marketplace podcast, How We Survive, that's coming Mm -hmm. out with its second season next week. And it's all about Miami and sea level rise and climate change. Um, And I heard the trailer the other day, and they have a lot of great interviews and tape, and I can't wait to hear it. So um, I think you're probably going to want to check that out too, Tom. I think there's going to be a lot more answers to your question in there. Yeah, I will say just to get the cross-platform promotion going, which I know will please the marketplace (laughs) bosses, uh, Amy Scott, who's hosting season two of How We Survived, went down to Fort Myers last week and brought back a couple Mm -hmm. of stories. One aired today on Marketplace, the other one will air tomorrow, about how people are bouncing back. And And then season two of How We Survived drops next week. Next week is when it comes. Yep. All right. One more question for you, Kai. This one is from Bryce. He sent us an email that says, why a nut? Kai has been referring to the monthly mortgage payment as the monthly nut. I've never heard this term before, so I've been wondering why a nut? Is this a Rizdalism? Is Kai making stuff up? (laughs) Much as I would like to take credit for that, it's not. I don't know where I heard it. I don't know when I heard it, but it really, you know, you got to crack the nut. You got to make the monthly nut. You got to figure out how to do it. And I don't know where it comes from, but that's that's what it means, right? You got to make that monthly payment. So there you go. All right. Well, now I want to know. I might have to look that up later. All right. Let me Google (laughs) that for you. All right. Quick. All right. That's it for us today on this What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. We'll be back tomorrow to make you smart on the news of the day and make you smile, too, we hope. In the meanwhile, please send us your questions. Our email is makemesmartatmarketplace.org. Leave us voicemail, 508-UB-SMART. We will um, get it on the pod. You know, assuming it's a good question, of course. All questions are good, right, Kai? No bad questions. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera with help this week from Tony Wagner. Alan Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's show was engineered by Juan Carlos Estrada, Ben Talladay, and Daniel Ramirez. Composed our theme music. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Bridget Bonner is still around, by the way. She's just working on other stuff. She kind of ditched us for other stuff. I guess it's flashier. Sexier. I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) Fine, Bridget. Be that way. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.